when you're not from a, from a country, you can be there and be one of a few things. You can, some of you have been these things. You can be an immigrant. Uh, you're, you're not from here, but you've come here for the purpose of making this your permanent home. And so this is, so taking that picture, this is what a lot of Christians do in the world and with the world. We, we live as citizens of the world and we, we treat the world as if it's our permanent home. And so we really just land here with the intention of this is it, this is everything. And so we, we can become consumed with concern about how things are going down here. And we can use all of our time and all of our resources to make life here more comfortable. And we can, we can worry about our reputation here. And we can worry about what we're going to miss out on here. Will I get married? Will I uh, have a successful career? Will I own that beach house as a vacation home? And, and we can think, this is, I've got one shot in life. And I've got to make the most out of it I can before I die. This is, this is, we can have that mindset. So you can be an immigrant or you can be a tourist. Um, you, can, you can be here, but you never get really involved. You're just kind of sightseeing and just passing through and observing casually and, 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 and kind of staying in the touristy areas, unengaged with the, with the local culture and, and people. And so you don't eat, really eat the food and you don't, uh, speak the language or try to learn the language. So that's that's how tourists are. You've been tourists in, in, in other places, maybe in this own country or certainly some of you overseas. And so that that's the attitude, though, a lot of Christians have towards the world. Um, we, we just kind of stay separated, don't get involved at all, uh, keep a safe distance from the locals, and stay, in, stay comfortably removed from... Uh, that the culture, so we huddle together, isolate ourselves from the world. That's kind of the mindset. I'm just just passing through, just hanging on, waiting until Christ comes back. So that can be a way we think about it. And then there's a third way, and that's you can be in a country that's not your own as an exile. As an exile, you're not trying to you're not trying to immigrate here. Your citizenship is in another place, and you don't want to change that. But you realize. You're stationed here for a while, and so there's part of your life that you, you have to put down here. And you're not living as a tourist. You're not just completely un, unattached to the culture. And so we, we see an example of this in, in Scripture with Israel when they're in Babylon, in Babylonian exile. And the Lord says to them, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What does he say? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. And then he says, get married and make babies. That's my summary of verse 6. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so that's the... So take that picture. And that's the imagery, I think. That, well, that's the imagery that Peter does have in mind. He tells us this when he writes to these Christians who are scattered throughout these pagan lands. And what does he call them at the beginning of the letter? He calls them elect exiles. That's who he's writing to. So as Christians, we're not immigrants. We're not, and we're not tourists. We're, we're exiles. Or he'll say in chapter 2, we're sojourners. We're pilgrims. Uh, we... We're, we're here, not as tourists, but we're also not making this a permanent home. So how, how do we live as exiles and sojourners in this world? Peter's readers, his first readers, desperately needed to understand that. And brothers and sisters, we desperately need to, to know how to live like that in our own day. But do you think of, of, of the situation in which Peter writes this letter? Peter's writing to these people who came out of these pagan backgrounds, and now they're Christians living in that same Pagan society. And so there's all this pressure to conform to that society that, they, that they've been part of and, and conform to the world around them. But Peter calls them to holiness, to be, to be set apart as exiles. They don't really belong here. This isn't their home. This isn't their home country. And, and so they're, 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 yes, they're living here, but they're to be different. They're to be holy. 
So every, just think back, let me set this in context where we get into this next section. We, everything we've looked at so far in First Peter has to do with what's true for us in Christ. So Peter reminds them and he reminds us about all the spiritual blessings that are ours because of what God has done for us in Jesus. That's what he's been laboring to do so far. Though, though we're scattered, though we're exiled, though we're alienated and, and, and maligned in this world, we are unbelievably blessed. There are these fixed realities of the, of the gospel that we know to be true. So in verse 13, though, we come not just to a new paragraph, but a whole new section. And you see a, a signal of this with the very first word. Look at verse 13. Therefore. And so he's, he's about to say something in light of all of these blessings and all of these spiritual realities that are our. There is, there is something now that changes. And there's, therefore. So he's calling us to, he's going to call us to appropriately respond to all of this grace that we've been given by God. And so you see it. He, because it, it's, so you take this therefore and you think of all that's been said. Because of our election in the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. Because of our regeneration according to God's mercy, we have been called, God caused us to be born again. Because of our reserved inheritance, because of our security in God, because of, uh, of, our, of the refining of our faith and that crucible of trials, because of Christ and the joy He brings, because of the assurance of our salvation, because of this gospel privilege that we have, the, the, the privilege that the, the prophets long to see, that the angels long to understand. It's because of all of that, in light of all of those things, therefore. So that's, that's, the, that's the setting of, of what we're beginning to work into in, the, in this letter of, of 1 Peter. And, so, and there's another clue in verse 13 that shows this verse is a hinge in the letter. Things are changing now. He starts using a different kind of verb. And so in verses 1 to 12, though we have all of these statements. Now in verse 13 and following, he's going to give orders. So we go from... Uh, all, the, all of these reminders to commands from, or we would say, indicatives to imperatives. So we're going to see that change. All, all of those blessings we have and we know as elect exiles, they demand responses in the way that we live. That's what he's going to show now. And so we, we titled this whole series, Hope is Alive. And what we mean by that, and we have this kind of dual meaning, we're born again to a living hope because Christ has risen from the dead. And so it's this hope is a gift that we possess. It's a living, it's a living gift that we know. But it also, this hope, it lives. It, it works its way out in our, in our lives, in, our, in what we say, in what we think, in what we do. And so it's, it's, it's this kind of living hope. It calls us and, and manifests itself in radical, holy living. And again, that's what it's going to be clear as we work through the next several chapters together. Let me make something plain at the outset of this new section, though, and I want to be really clear. All of these things that we're going to be called to, um, none of these things can get you to heaven by doing them. (laughs) Striving to be holy is not what makes us fit for heaven. All of the good works you can muster cannot pay the penalty for your sins. Only the blood of Jesus can satisfy the justice of God. And so we must put our trust in Christ alone, not in good works. And so that's... that's, But but, but listen, but the saving grace we receive by faith alone, it opens to us then a life of progressive sanctification. A life of growth and holiness. And that's what, that's what this is talking about. He's writing to Christians and how they grow in this way. So in, so in verses 13 to 16, which is all we're going to focus on this morning, we have the first of these two, the first of the imperatives that come. And there's two of them. Everything else in these verses hangs off of these two main branches in these few verses. The first imperative is in verse 13, and it's this. I know, depending on what translation you're using, it look, may look like there's a lot of other imperatives. We'll talk about that in a moment. First one is this. Set your hope. Second imperative is in verse 15. Be or become holy. And so hope, be holy. That's the, that's the main thrust of what he's saying. This is how God wants us to respond to all of the blessings of our salvation, no matter what kind of trials and no matter what you're working, walking through right now, this is how we're to respond with hope and pursuing holiness. 
All right, first thing is here. Focus the lens of your hope. And we're going to look at this first imperative. Focus the lens of your hope. Now, uh, for those of you, I don't want to like ruin this for your parents who've tried to keep this from your children, but if you, kids, if you get a magnifying glass on a day like today, you got some sun out there, you can do some stuff with that thing, and it's very exciting. And your parents did this. Your dads did, I know. Um, and so you, you have the magnifying glass and you have the sun. And so if you, if you just, you know, if you're not doing anything, just holding it up off the ground, you know, you have the sun shining through that magnifying glass. But if the light's not gathered and if it's not focused, then it really, it's really there's not much energy there. There's really no effect. But if you focus the light of that sun through that magnifying glass on a very small area, you can, you know, burn holes in leaves and and fry insects and stuff like that and just have all kinds of fun. And um, be careful, though. Just disclaimer, I did not endorse that behavior. So, um, listen, we're talking about hope. We're talking about focusing the lens of your hope. What I mean is hope isn't just some general feeling that we have that that we that we should occasionally have it's not weak some weak vague idea that just kind of helps us get through the monday blues that's not it and and i say this just this little word therefore for the christian what hope does is it gathers all of that light, the sun of God's saving work for us in Christ, and all that has been done, all of these, these spiritual blessings that we have that we sang from Ephesians 1 and that very first song, gathers all of that and it focuses it, uh, focuses it on this future prospect. That's what, that's what we're doing when we hope. And so let's talk about the way verse 13 is put together. So in some English translations, if you're using the New American Standard Bible, and there's a reason they translate it this way, but it looks like you have three side-by-side commands in verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope. It's like it's a short to-do list. Boom, boom, boom. Do these things. But that's not really what Peter's saying. There's one command in verse 13, and it's this. Set your hope. That's the big idea. And so everything else hangs off of that. So the, and this hope, we, let's talk about hope. What do, what do we mean when we say that? Because we use the word hope in, 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 in our English today, and it's just kind of this wish for the future. Uh, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. And, but listen, there's no certainty about atmospheric conditions 24 hours from now. Uh, we know how quick weather can change and weather patterns and all of that. So that's not what we're talking about. That's pretty flimsy hope. But, but rather, the word that Peter uses here for hope, it, it's, it's describing that assurance, assurance that what is hoped for will certainly come to pass. That's what he's talking about. And that's because future hope in the New Testament, when we see hope in the New Testament, it's something that's, that's it's, it's based upon something that's already happened in the past. Namely, Christ's resurrection from the dead. And that's what our hope for believers comes from. It's because Christ is risen. So, so that's what hope is. What are we to set our hope upon? What, what do we focus the lens of our hope on? Is it the possibility of graduating with honors and getting a good job? Is that, is that, is that what we need to focus our hope on? Is it the, poss- the, the chance of meeting Mr. and Mrs. Wright and getting married? Is that, is that what consumes our hope? Is it, is it the potential that maybe my spouse will someday change, be the perfect spouse that I thought they would be? Is that what you're hoping in? Do you set your hope on, on, the, on, on the potential for prosperity, that one day the market's going to surge and you're just going to be loaded with wealth? Those are not objects worthy of focused hope. What do we set our hope? On the grace of God. Look at the text. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's the first thing we say about hope is this, and focusing it. Focus your hope on the expectation of future grace. Focus it on the expectation of future grace. Now, I I thought it was pretty clear from verses 3 to 12 that we already have received the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's what salvation is all about. It's us receiving the undeserved favor, the grace of God. And he's labored to make that point clear at the opening of this letter. So why should we set our hope on grace in the future? What is he saying here? Well, while grace is fully present now, 
it's not yet fully realized by us. Or we could say this, that saving grace is already a reality because of Christ's death and resurrection and what he's accomplished, but the gracious gift of final deliverance is still to come. We've been singing about this already, whether you realized it or not. I knew where, I was, where we were going, so these, these, this was present in the songs we were singing. When will this grace be fully realized? Well, he says, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so there's a strong emphasis, as we're going to see now throughout the book of 1 Peter, on eschatology, on the last things, on, on Christ's return. And that's going to be a dominant theme throughout the rest of this letter. So during a time of trial, and some of you are walking through a time like that right now, if your hope is on something that's happening in the next five minutes, that's, that's your hope's in the wrong place. If, you're, if your hope is that your circumstances will change in the next week, in the next month, in the next year or decade or sometime in your life, if your hope is that everybody around you or some person in your life will, will change, then your hope is in the wrong place. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't ever work to change our circumstances if that's appropriate. Sometimes it is. I mean, an extreme situation of like an abusive situation, it's not that... You just got to stay there. That's the Christian thing to do. So that's not it. Sometimes it's help. It's it's wise to help people change their circumstances. That's appropriate. But our ultimate hope isn't in things being made right now. Our ultimate hope is in things being made right then, when the grace of our Lord is brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter's saying to them and to us as they're going through this intense season of trials, you've already tasted of God's grace and salvation in Christ, and it is good. But you just hang on through your trials because you haven't seen anything yet. (laughs) That God, you focus your hope on the fact that God is going to bless you in ways that you can't even possibly imagine right now. He's going to bring it to you. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And so no matter how, how hot the furnace of affliction is for you right now, and what kind of difficulties you're walking through right now, uh, the coming grace and the final deliverance of God when Christ returns is deserving of every ounce of hope you have. And so focus it on this expectation of coming grace when Christ returns. So that's the first thing we do with our hope. Second, Focus your hope completely. Focus your hope completely. Set your hope, the text says, fully on the grace that will be brought to you. So we're not to hope timidly, uh, weakly, uh, mildly, partially. No, we're to hope fully. Fully. Undiluted, full strength hope. Not watered down, wishful thinking. No, if your hope, if, and if our hope will be focused fully on that grace that's coming, that means that it won't be focused on other things. You can't focus on everything at the same time. So what are you focusing your hope on? We can't have divided or diluted hope. You know, the, world, the world around us is constantly training us and conditioning us to put our hope in other things, in education, in looks, in, in uh, you know, athletic abilities, in in, in good health and success and status or whatever it is. And that, the world's constantly trying to, to get us to hope in those things. But, but we need to have the strong, vibrant, uh, full, focused, undivided hope that when Jesus comes back, we will experience His grace and it will be all satisfying. That's what we've got to set our hope on. And we've got to set our full hope on that. We focus our hope fully. Third, focus your hope with mental resolve. With mental resolve. Preparing, look at the text, verse 13, preparing your minds for action. Or literally, translated this one, I think the King James does, girding up the loins of your minds. (laughs) You can see why the ESV is translated it the way it has. That's a great word picture, but it doesn't really speak to our our context, we don't gird our loins. 
Um, it's probably not come up in conversation in the last week. But the image, and some of you know this, the image is those, that long flowing outerwear that was worn in Bible times, kind of a big robe or tunic. And, and so if you had work to do, if you needed to run or if you needed to fight and you know, battle or something like that, you'd, you'd tuck that flowing garment in your belt so that you were freed up and your legs could move and you could, you could, get, you could go and you could get things done. The, maybe a modern expression like this, we roll up our sleeves and get to work. We're, we're saying we've got we to be unhindered. And, that's what, that's, and so his point is we, we set our hope on this future grace. We fully set our hope on future grace, not by kind of idle wishfulness or casual generic optimism. No, but, but by this mental resolve to live in light of the hope that we have in Christ. We've got to prepare our minds. We have all these dis- we have these competing thoughts and these distracting attitudes, and we gotta we gotta pull them up and tuck them in and put them away so that we can prepare our minds for, for active pursuit of a life filled with Christ. That's what he's saying to them. We've got to be preparing our minds to think, to think hard things, to think things through carefully, to think things that as as Paul says to the Philippians are true and honorable and just and lovely, and pure, and commendable, and excellent, and praiseworthy. Think upon these things, Paul says to them. Brother Thomas Carinard walked through this verse in Sunday school, one of the Sunday school classes for a couple of weeks. It was great reminders. But listen, I know how careful some of you are about the food that you put in your mouth and the stomach. And you, I mean, I've seen you read those labels, and... And you are look. You have all these things that you do not want to consume, and that's that's fine. And and you're just so careful. And so it's hard to buy stuff. And you gotta. And some of you have allergies and those things. So you're very careful about those things. And and if boy, if you're a kid, they're putting something in their mouth that you know has high fructose corn syrup in it or something like that, and you dive across the living room, slap that thing across the, out of their hand, because you care so much about the food that's consumed. Listen. But how, how, how careful are you about what is fed into your mind? How, do you, how, how, how passionate are you about that? And I'm not just talking about you know, what you watch on TV and what you see on the Internet. I mean, yes, I am talking about those things. But don't, don't think, oh, yeah, I, I've got filters, so that's, I'm good. That's not it. You know, the, the, there's, this, there's this world, there's the world, the flesh, the devil, they're all working to... Con, to to conform our thinking and to, to, to help us to think wrong thoughts, unbiblical thoughts, ungodly thoughts. And I don't just mean, you know, uh, depraved thoughts, but I just mean wrong ways of thinking about life, wrong ways of thinking about the world, wrong ways of thinking about God, relationships, and, 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 and my future. And there's just competing, there's wrong thoughts that are just constantly pressing on, on us. So Peter says, you've got to, You've got to prepare your mind for action. You've got to think well. And again, the mind, not just the intellect, not just you need to fill your mind with more information that's good. It, that part of it, but the, as, as Peter uses the mind, in the New Testament you see the mind, it's just what informs our conduct, what determines our direction, and helps us make decisions. And So it's not just this academic thing, but, but the more our minds are prepared, the more we can fully set our hope on Christ and on future grace. When you're prepared for a test and you've studied hard and you've done the, you put in the hours to get ready, then, then it, it's amazing how much hope that gives you. And so you go in and you're, 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 you're calm and you're, you're not nervous and you're actually kind of excited, man. I'm looking forward to seeing that, you know, high A on that test and and, it, and it's, some of you have never experienced that. I, really, <laughs> I, hope, that's, I hope that you have. But it, it's that way in trials to, to an extent. That, that, think about the trials that you faced last week or the fi- trials you faced last month or even over the last year. Maybe some, something really stands out. Were you prepared? Were you ready? Is your mind ready? Does the way that you responded to that trial or those trials, did, did it show that you had hope in your heart because your mind was prepared for that. How do, you, how do you get ready? How do you prepare your mind? How do you gird the loins of your mind up? <laughs> well, let me, let me just give you a, a few, let me play the part of a biblical counselor for a moment. 
Just give you some, some things to do. So jot these down if you're taking notes. One thing you can do in the context of First Peter, go back through verses 1 to 12. Remember what? Therefore, it's pointing us backward. Go through it. Write all the reasons that you have to hope in Christ because of what he's done for you. All of those gospel indicatives. Write, write those down. That what is, why, why would you do that? Because that reminds you, these things are absolutely true. Nothing that comes into my life, no surprises, no twists and turns, no bumps and unexpected difficulties, no tragedies. These things right here cannot be taken away from me. They're fixed realities. And that we need that in times of trials. And this is why I think Peter starts with this in this letter. Secondly, another thing you can do. Sit down and write out a trial that you seem to have handled poorly recently. And think through, what, what were the circumstances? What happened? Um, how did you respond? What were you thinking? I don't mean, what, what were you thinking? But what were your thoughts? What, were your pro, what, were, what kind of thoughts were in your mind? How was your mind interpreting what was going on? So kind of lay it out and try to remember. And then plan out in advance how God would want you to respond to that situation if it ever comes up again. You know, what, what, how would God want me to respond? What kind of thoughts would be more biblical? How can I prepare my mind for action if this ever comes up again? And so you're talking to yourself and you write these things down. And then third, draw someone else into that process. As part of our preparation of our minds. It's not something we do alone with nobody else around. No, we bring others in. Someone who can help us think it through. This is why we have a biblical counseling ministry. And this is why we encourage that side-by-side ministry. Have them pray for you. How, um, pray that you'll be able to handle this kind of trial in a more godly, hopeful, um, prepared way next time it comes around. So, again, don't just take this in the abstract. Think, what does it mean to prepare my mind for action as I, as I labor to set my hope fully on the grace that will be revealed when Christ returns? Fourth, fourth thing to say about this focus of our hope. Focus your hope by staying sober. Folks are hope by staying sober. Some of you think, ah, oh, I got that one. Okay, no. It says, being sober-minded. Now, sober is a favorite word for Peter. Of the six times that it's used in the New Testament, he uses it half of those times. And so he, he's not talking about alcohol per se, but he's using that imagery of, of being drunk with alcohol. And he's, he's talking about our minds being alert and, and aware and self-controlled. That's the, that's the idea of being sober-minded. And so he uses the same word in verse 8 of chapter 5, and, and maybe a passage you're more familiar with, where he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. So just take that passage, and I think it helps us understand what he's saying when he's sober-minded. If, if, imagine if we all started, you know, our phones started going crazy, and we're getting text alerts that there was a zoo transport vehicle that crashed on Corinth Road, and there's a lion loose somewhere along this little Corinth corridor. So just be on the alert. And so after the service is over, or maybe even you're just going to get cooked coffee in the in the other building, uh, how would you handle that? <laughs> you're just going to be kind of walking around, just taking your time, you know, checking social media and, you know, playing Candy Crush or whatever. You're walking across the parking lot. No, of course not. You're going to be... Looking out before you open the door, watching out. I'd be looking now, and okay, I don't see it. And you'd be you'd be on high alert. All your senses are heightened. You'd be you know keeping your kids behind you, and or maybe putting them out in front of you. I don't know. <laughs> I'll just let you do what you want. But you're, you're you're looking for any sign of that, making any taking all precaution to make sure that you're not attacked and nobody is attacked. We'd have you know the deacons as a front line defense. They'd be out there guarding us and all that kind of thing. So. But the point is, that, that's, what it, that's the idea of sober-minded. It's being alert. It's all senses are working. You know, when you're drunk, your senses are muted. So this is the opposite. So we're sober, clear-headed. So the point is, we, we set our hope fully on coming grace in the midst of trials by staying alert. We're, we're aware, we're sober-minded. Because when we face severe trials, you know this, brothers and sisters, if you're honest, your minds can go crazy. And you can, you can, your thoughts can be racing and, and assuming 
all kinds of things that are not likely to happen. And you can create these scenarios in your head. And, 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 and you, can, you can assume the worst about people. And you can have and think the darkest thoughts possible about the future. So your mind can go, go crazy. We can get intoxicated with worry, drunk on fear, inebriated with anger. I mean, any, all these things, we, our judgment and our, our senses become clouded and distorted. And as a result, what happens? When that, when that begins to happen, when your mind goes ballistic like that, what happens? Your hope shrivels, doesn't it? And, and you become consumed with panic. Focused hope needs sobriety. It needs sobriety of mind and of heart. So that's the first thing Peter says. You got you to, in light of all of the blessings that you have in Christ, how do you live as exiles in this world? You got to focus your hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, preparing your minds for actions, keeping sober-minded. On difficult days, when the heat's really turned up, and, and when, you, when you feel alone, when you're suffering in this world, when you feel alienated, don't give up hope. Because Christ's return and the grace he will bring is coming. He's coming. And I pray... Listen, I pray that we as a congregation, we will stand out as elect exiles in this world by the curious, strange, wonderful, courageous, uh, Godward, joyful, wholehearted, focused hope that we have. We will be hopeful people. Uh, we won't give in to the fear-mongering that is everywhere around us on on the major media, on social media, we will have hope, people. Because Christ is coming. We have a perspective that, that the world does not have, that we des- that desperately needs. I pray that our children and our youth won't grow up with this kind of flimsy hope, flimsy uh, optimism. They're hoping for the newest gadget or for the, you know, the next thrill or the, the next election. That's when everything's going to change. That's not... It's not what we want to be raising our children to have hope in. Uh, but I pray that they'll have this unshakable hope, undiluted hope on, that's set on the grace that's coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We desperately need it. So that's the first exhortation that Peter gives. He focused the lens of your hope. Second, tread the path of holiness. Tread the path of holiness. See this in verses 14 to 16. The second command in these verses, verse 15, be holy. How? As God is holy. Now, is that a difficult command? To the extent that God is holy, that's how you need to be holy. Well, okay, that's, that's pretty high. What, is it, what does it mean to be holy? The, the, the basic idea is to be separate, to be set apart or other. Many of you, perhaps, have holy dishes in your house. And those are the dishes that maybe you registered for at your wedding and, or your you know, family member or great-grandmother passed down to you. They sit in a china cabinet, untouched, and uh, just for, but you don't even allow your kids to look at them because you're afraid they're going to break them by, by just seeing them. You, you don't eat your Captain Crunch in the morning in those bowls. And they've never seen a slice of greasy pizza in their lives because they're, they're reserved for special occasions. Those special occasions that haven't come in, you know, 10 years or something. But in one of these days, uh, those are holy dishes. That's, that's the kind of the idea. It's just they're separate. They're unique. They're not everyday use. They're, they're not like normal dishes. They're special. Well, when you apply that to God, to, to speak of God's holiness, we're, one of the things we're speaking about is his transcendence. He's just other. He's set apart. He's not like us. He's not like anything in creation. Who is there like a God, like our God? There's no one like him. He's beyond everything else in creation. And so contained in that word is the idea of God's purity. He's separate from sin, from all sin, completely. And so when God calls us then to holiness and says, be holy as God is holy, it means to, is to be like God. It's to conform our thinking and our behavior and our words to God's character. 
to, to be set apart from the world to God, to be set apart from sin to God. Now you, we say that and we say, well, I know my own heart. I know in the core of my being how much sin remains. Just as we've been meeting this morning, the thoughts that have danced across my mind are disgusting. And you're saying, I'm going to be holy like God is holy. What, what, what are, how is that possible? How can we ever hope? And just, just a quick little theology 101 lesson when it comes to sanctification. First thing, when, when, you, when we talk about holiness, there's kind of three senses that you see in Scripture. One, there's that positional aspect of holiness, that we are set apart for God at the moment of conversion. We are saints. We are saints, brothers and sisters. We're set apart to God. So that's one aspect. Secondly, there's that progressive aspect of, of holiness, that as uh, the moment we become Christians, we begin growing in holiness, and we're being made more and more sanctified or set apart. And so the process isn't complete as long as we're in these bodies. And, and we'll always be working at it. And that's what we're talking about here. And then third, there's that perfect aspect of holiness that's still coming. That we will one day be made like Him. As He is. First John 3, 2. We'll be perfectly sanctified and set apart to God. Sin is removed, gone. And so, that in mind, what, is, what He says, again, He says four things here about this call to holiness. First thing, be holy as a child of obedience. So it says, obedient children, verse 14, or children of obedience is probably a better translation. So the focus, and, and I say that because there's a difference. The focus in the text, in, in, the, in the Greek here, it's not on the child's actions, on what he does. He's a child who obeys. That's not the focus. It's not be holy like good little boys and girls. It's not what he's saying. The language puts the focus on the child's nature, not his actions. The child is a child who's born of obedience. He's the offspring of lady obedience. And so it's from that that he's obedient from the inside out. That's, that's what Peter's saying. So, again, it's not, a, it's not a child who just always does what he's told, a little goody two-shoes. It's, it's a child who, again, is the offspring of obedience, therefore he is obedient. And so I just say that. When it comes to holiness, what do we tend to think of right away? Oh, these lists of do's and don'ts. And, uh, you know, it's this burden. It's not, it's, not, it's not a beautiful thing to us. Like Scripture speaks of the beauty of holiness. Worship God in the splendor of His holiness. And, and it ought to be a beautiful thing because it's perfection. It's, it's perfect. Every aspect of God, it's, it's, his, it's His perfections. And, yeah, but we think it's do's and don'ts. And so our, our actions do matter. What we do and don't do does matter. But it springs from our nature. Springs from all that Peter said in the first 12 verses of this letter. It says, children of obedience that we must resolve to be holy. All right, that's the second thing. Be holy by making a break with your former life. Look at verse 14, second part of verse 14. Not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, the word conform there, it's used only here and one other time, and you probably know the place, in Romans 12, 2, by Paul. And so he says to the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's the same, same word. So, but Peter here says, not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Those passions, those self-seeking pursuits and lusts. Now, not just sexual lusts, but just any kind of self-seeking passion for wealth or power or pleasure or status or ease. They, Come. This is how sin and temptation come to us. This is why there's such a strong pull on us, because there's these pleasures, there are these passions that are aroused. It's not just kind of, we don't just, hmm, uh, you know, sin or righteousness, they both are equal, they look about the same. Good. No, it comes, it looks so good, it looks so pleasurable, and we have these passions inside of us that, that are gravitate towards that. So it's just tug on us, and, and yet what is, what is Peter saying? Not, you pursue all these not being conformed, Push into the mold of those former passions. Brothers and sisters, what, what former passions are you, are you being pressed into right now? What kind of mold are you being pressed into today? As you think about your thoughts and your words and your actions, how are you being conformed to those 
passions. And then he says, third, be holy in your whole way of life. See this in verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, the, God is the pattern of holiness. To, 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 as God is, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And we think of God's holiness, and it's really true with all of his attributes, but especially with his holiness. We're not just saying like his holiness is just kind of one aspect of his character, like his love and his compassion and his wrath and, and his, his omnip, omnipotence and omnipresence, those kinds of things. It was holiness. This is the one attribute where you see three times holy, holy, holy. This is every attribute of God is a holy attribute of God. It's all of his conduct. Every aspect of God's life is holy. And so, to, so and he says to us then, be holy in all your conduct. In all your, that, that word conduct or behavior in some of your translations. This is an, another favorite word of Peter. Six of the 13 times are, are, are right here in First Peter and two more are in Second Peter. And so he's, he's the one that uses this more than anybody else. And, and, and then he adds, and it just means behavior, lifestyle, your walk. That's the kind of root idea of the word. And he adds the word all. So in every department of your life, in everything that you do, be holy. It's not something, holiness isn't just something we pursue with kind of the religious spheres of our life. You know, when, when something that's important to us on Sundays when we sing together and when we worship together and when we take communion. Okay, now holiness matters. Or in our small group or when we're doing churchy stuff and eating pancakes or if that's a churchy thing. I don't know. No, our holiness, it's got to affect every area of life. Every part. Public, private, sacred, secular. There's, there's no distinction for the Christian between you know, the aspects of our life that need to be holy and the aspects that it's okay. J.I. Packer talks about this in uh, his book, A Quest for Godliness, and, and the subtitle is A Puritan Vision of the Christian Life. And he, he's just looking at how the Puritans viewed uh, the Christian life and sanctification and, and what it means to live godly lives. And so he makes the point that the Puritans, if you've read in the Puritans, they work hard um, almost to excess, to integrate uh, Christianity into every aspect of life, into marriage, into parenting, into politics, into social settings, into every aspect of life. They want to, they, they, they integrate it. And, and Packer says, there was for them no distinction between sacred and secular. All creation, so far as they were concerned, was sacred. And all activities of whatever kind must be sanctified, that is, done to the glory of God. And so this is, you're saying, in all of your conduct, be holy, as God is holy. Holiness doesn't just matter in kind of the big stuff of life. It's, it's in the small stuff. And most of life is small things, isn't it? It's just, it's just normal kind of stuff. But he says, be holy in all of that stuff. That, that doesn't mean that, okay, well, what we do is we create this, this new set of rules and and regulations for every little part of life. I just need long. I need a bigger rule book. I can, honey, can you pick up a longer journal when you go to the store so I can write more rules for every aspect of my life? That's not it. Holiness is about God. It's about God. It's, a, it's we're set apart to Him in every part of life. And so it's God when I wake up. It's God when I'm in the shower. It's God when I'm making coffee. It's God when I'm eating breakfast. It's God in my commute. It's God in the classroom. It's God in the, in the office. It's God in the factory. It's God at break time. It's God at lunch. It's God on my way home at the dinner table. It's God watching television and, and checking, surfing the web and checking email and sending text messages and scrolling through social media. It's God. It's God at bedtime. God in every detail, in every place, in every relationship. It's, it's God in every thought, every word, every deed. It's God in private moments. It's God when I'm with my friends. It's God with them when I'm with my enemies. It's God when I'm happy and when I'm sad. It's God when I have good days and bad days. It's God in my faith, God in my doubts. It's God when I succeed, God when I fail. It's, just, it's life oriented to God. It's lives that reflect God. And what does that mean? It means that our commitment to God should be on a completely different level than our commitment to everything else. It certainly means that. 
God's not content to be kind of the top of our list of priorities in life as he's just the, the first among many things. No, our devotion to God is of a whole different kind. I mean, just to, illustrate, to think in how this works out in marriage, if I said to, book, to Brooke, well, of all of the ladies that are important to me in life, you're number one, babe. That would not go over well. <laughs> this illustration may not go over well. I don't know. But what does that mean? I, I, it means I have this list of ladies in my mind, and she's my fave, but, uh, you know, there's others. And I, there's others that I, that I think are really special too, but she's number one. That's not, that's not how it works. That, 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 you know, she, she gets her own list, and she's the only one on it. She's not number one on my list. She's the only one on my list. And, and this is how it is. But people think like that. God's at the top of my list. I want to make him number one in my life. I want to give him the largest piece of the pie of my life. You know, but I, he's got to be at the top of the list. And I say, what, what list are you talking about? God's got his own list. He's the only one on it. He, 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 nothing else in your life ever created you. Or lived and died to save you from your sins. He gets his own list. And he's it. He's not, Jesus isn't your co-pilot. He made the plane, owns the plane, flies the plane, created all the laws that allow the plane to fly. He's it. He's not your BFF. He, He alone is holy. He's holy. Every part of your life should reflect that reality. That God is holy. Last thing about being holy. Be holy by growing in knowledge of God's holiness. By growing in knowledge of God's holiness. Peter quotes Leviticus in, in uh, the, uh, the Old Testament law of Moses. Verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's four times in Leviticus that expression is used. Be holy because I am holy. But what he's saying is he's bringing that to the church. Jewish, Gentile, doesn't matter. God's word has bearing on these people's lives. Our being set apart in relationship with God is what truly defines us as sojourners, as exiles in this world. That's what sets us apart. It's how we relate to God. Peter will press his home in 1 Peter 2.9. Says we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. So, what are you saying? We we don't define holiness by kind of modern standards of what's good and what's not good, and kind of morality. We don't define stand, holiness horizontally by looking around and saying, oh, "I'm better than them, I'm more holy than that person, so I'm pretty holy." And they're you know they're not they're not so bad themselves. Um, no, we we look vertically. We look to God. It's oriented vertically, Christians. We tend to be kind of flippant and shallow in our understanding of God and of His holiness. We, we talk about Him without any, any sense of fear or wonder or awe of His greatness, of His absolute perfection and holiness. Different than Isaiah, who has that, who has that vision of the Lord and the angels around the throne, and what are they crying out? Holy, holy Holy. That wasn't cool to Isaiah. That was terrifying. He was traumatized by that. And he's completely undone. And one of the results of that is he sees himself in a totally different light. Sees how sinful he is. And R.C. Sproul said, In the flash of a moment, Isaiah had a new and radical understanding of sin. He saw that it was pervasive in himself and in everyone else. And so the more we know of God's holiness, the more we'll grasp the extent and the magnitude of our sin. It's deeper than we ever thought. It's more pervasive than we ever thought. But, brothers and sisters, at the same time, we will revel in the amazing grace of God that saved us from sin's penalty through the cross of Jesus Christ. Those both happen. And that that leads me, in conclusion, to to the most significant thing about God's holiness. that, That when Jesus, God's holy Son, without sin, completely other when, when He came to earth and condescended, His holiness did not destroy us, 
but it healed us. Jesus was perfectly holy, and, and yet He touched unholy things and unclean people, and they were cleansed. That doesn't happen with anybody else. Matthew 8, verses 1 to 3, When He came down from the mountain, great crowds followed Him, and behold, a leper came to Him and knelt before Him, saying, Lord, if You will, You, make me, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out His hand and touched Him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Listen, when clean things touch unclean things, clean things become unclean. If I have a child, one of my daughters has got a cold and is, you know, just in the middle of it and, and I hold her in my lap and she's coughing in my face and there's not a chance in the world that my wellness will make her healthy. But there is a great chance that her sickness will make me sick. Um, but with Jesus, it's, it works in reverse. Because <laughs> he's holy. Truly holy. His holiness wasn't defiled by us. His holiness healed our unholiness. And so that's, that's because Jesus wasn't only holy in purity. He was holy in love. And he was holy in power. And so his, his holy love absorbed all of our sinfulness and unholiness and he suffered for our sin in his death. And, and in, in his holy power, he conquered that by raising from the dead. And so the greatest display of God's holiness is not in his separating himself from us, but it's entering into our sinful and corrupt world and taking it upon himself, and putting it away forever. That's the greatest display. Brothers and sisters, you are not immigrants here. You are not tourists. You are elect exiles, sojourners. And as elect exiles, what do, you, what do we need to do? We need to focus the lens of our hope on this grace that's coming when Christ returns. Set your minds fully upon that. And you need to tread the path of holiness. Don't veer off of it. Don't be drawn away to those former passions. No matter what you're going through, resolve to to stay the course with these things. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help every person in here, Father, to, to have more settled hope on, on the grace that's coming and to be more committed to walk on the path of holiness. I know when trials come, those are two things that so quickly flee us. We, we lose hope, we get distracted, and we begin wishing and hoping for, for other things and changes around us in this life, and we also we, we forget that we are called to be holy, and we begin seeking pleasures to make us more comfortable and make life more pleasant and to distract us. But I pray that as elect exiles, as those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world and set apart by, uh, set apart by you and redeemed by Christ and born again to a living hope, that we would be full of hope and committed to holiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.